Earlier this week, uh, a number of us were at an event um, in Lisbon um, on discipleship, and I was reminded there of a quote that I quite like, and it is this. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. I'm not sure who said it first. Um, If you search it online, as I did, you get loads of different answers. People can't seem to agree. Everything from Martin Luther scribbling it on a piece of paper on his deathbed to a Sri Lankan Methodist minister about a century ago. I don't know who said it first, but I think they really hit the nail on the head. One beggar telling another where he found bread. Because whether it's somebody standing up here and proclaiming to a, a group of people the gospel, or whether it's a private conversation with somebody sharing their faith, The person sharing the gospel is is no better than anybody else, no better than the person receiving it. Certainly the case up here this morning, I'm no better or holier or whatever you want to say than anyone else. And in fact, to say it's one beggar telling another where he found bread is probably the understatement of the century because it's one sinner telling another sinner, another enemy of God, telling him where he found heaven and peace with God. Now, we've been following the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. There's a fancy map of his second one. And we haven't looked at everything in here, but basically from Acts 13 through to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, we normally call that his first missionary journey. And everything from Acts 16 onwards for a little bit is thought of as his second missionary journey. And I think Paul really got the idea of being a beggar, telling another where to find food, We know that in the letters that he wrote that we have later on in the New Testament, he calls himself the chief of sinners, that he admits that he used to persecute Christians. He calls himself a wretch of a man, even as he lives the Christian life out. He doesn't think of himself as better than anyone. And yet he's clearly found something that he is compelled to share with others. We thought about that two weeks ago, just how determined Paul was, even though sometimes he preached to people who just didn't really care, even though he went all the way to Cyprus and preached, and he got one single convert. Even though when he went to Lystra, it was a complete disaster because the people worshipped him, first of all, and when he was trying to get them to stop, it turned into a riot, and they took him outside of the city and stoned him, they thought, to death. But he was so determined, he got back up and he went in to preach again. The news was just too good not to share with others. People could get all of God's riches and it was offered at Christ's expense. That's grace. No wonder he was determined. And we saw that determination continue last week as we thought about the change that the gospel makes as Paul and Silas traveled to Philippi. Whether it was Lydia, the rich businesswoman, whether it was the slave girl who was being exploited by her owners, or whether it was the jailer, he was about to end it all. And in that moment, he realized that all wasn't right with his life, and he needed the Savior. Paul is just constantly funneling the good news. He's telling people how they need to respond to it so that they can get that unshakable joy that is yours when you follow Christ. One beggar telling another where he found bread. So Paul goes on this missionary journey at the start of Acts 17 to Thessalonica, where some people are converted, but some of the Jewish leaders aren't happy about it, it, so they chase him out. He goes down to Berea, again, more converts, but the religious leaders back in Thessalonica follow him, and they cause more trouble. Paul then flees to Athens, and that's where we're concentrating our time this morning. 
But he also goes on after Athens. He goes to Corinth in chapter 18, then Antioch, then Ephesus, then Caesarea, Antioch again, Galatia, Phrygia, and back to Ephesus again. That's the second missionary journey. Now, if you're like me, all of that makes your brain hurt just a little bit. Last year, I suggested to, to Marty that we should preach through a New Testament letter, and in fact, I, I nagged him for a long time before we did it, and he was very gracious, and he agreed that we could do Colossians, and we did that last year, you might remember, and you know, we did it despite the fact that he doesn't love preaching those letters just the way I do, but then in the autumn, he got his own back. He said, we're going to preach through Acts, and I thought, oh no, my head hurts already, because you know, they go here and they go there and they go to another place and they go somewhere else and I, I, it just makes my brain hurt. I can't follow it, to be honest. There's some kind of mental block. So if you're like me this morning, don't worry. We, we will pull different bits and pieces from all of these three chapters, but we are going to spend the vast majority of our time just focusing in on Athens. And the reason why I've picked Athens in particular is because I think there are many things in Athens in the first century which are in common with ourselves in the 21st century. I mean, it's probably true of all the places where Paul visited, but Athens is a center. It's something of a cultural hub during this time. One commentator has said that Athens represents the golden age of Greece and the birthplace of Western philosophy, theater, and government. So the way we think in the West today, the way we're entertained, the way our society works, it all had its origin in this empire, and Athens is at the center of it. Great thinkers like Socrates and Pericles, Aristophanes, Aristotle, Plato, they were all in this city. Now, we're not going to think about that philosophy today because it would make my head even more than, it hurt even more than it already does following Paul around on these missionary journeys. But the point is, that the way this ancient civilization developed and had a lasting impact on us and on our world today, especially in the West. I think we see that through the, this passage in Acts 17 this morning. And um, if you have your Bible there, I'd encourage you to keep it open at Acts 17. It's a culture that worshiped idols. Um, if you look again at verse 16 with me, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now this was a society which is what we call polytheistic, so they had lots of gods. They tried to sort of please them all. It was a bit of a balancing act. You know, you offered your sacrifices to the god of the sun and the god of the rain, and you kind of hoped that that would happen then in the right balance so that your crops would grow. You know, you offered sacrifices to the god of thunder in the hope that there wouldn't be too many storms if you could kind of keep him happy. You know, you offered sacrifices to the god of fertility. There were loads of these gods, and the idea was that if you kind of kept them all happy, things would go well in your life. Now, you might say that doesn't sound too much like the 21st century, or our society isn't like that at all. And, and no, it isn't, but they had, and we have in our society, a principle behind all of that. And that principle is tolerance. Tolerance. You know, back then the idea was, you know, we'll offer sacrifices to our gods, to, to all the gods that we know to try and keep them happy, but if you have a different god, or come from a different place with different gods, happy days, you, you go and sacrifice to them too, because if you keep them happy, that'll do all of us good. We'll keep our gods happy, you keep your gods happy, and, 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 and we'll stay out of it. But the reason why Greeks and Romans never got on 
with the Jews and then later Christians was because Jews and Christians believed that their God was the only God. Their scriptures said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. They said that those other gods were no gods at all. In fact, we read Paul tell these people that they were ignorant. And even though Christians lived quite happily with um, non-believing neighbors around them, and they might have only told them about Jesus you know, because they cared for them, they wanted them to hear the good news, to, to find where that bread was, they were branded as intolerant. Those intolerant Christians say that their way is the only way. How dare they say that to us? How dare they criticize my way of life? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The idols of today might be different. They might be money or success or sex or, or basically just personal happiness. You know, if, if it feels good, it must be right. You know, you just do you over there. And if you want to be a Christian over there, well, well that's fine. If you find God, good for you. But don't come over here and tell me about it. Don't tell me my way is wrong or that we are all sinners or that Jesus is the only way. That's intolerant. And so our tolerant world is not so tolerant sometimes when it comes to us challenging their unbelief. So it was then and so it is now. But that's not the only similarity between the two cultures between what Paul saw in Athens and what we might see around us today. For one thing, people then largely believed that, you know, it was all about the here and now. That's why they wanted to please the gods so that they kind of have a good life now. They completely rejected the idea of anything beyond the present, anything eternal. It was all about trying to have a good life now. That's why these people scoffed when Paul talked about resurrection from the dead. And as well as that, they embraced new ideas. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but they rejected old ideas, even things that were kind of tried and tested. Look with me again at verse 19. Then they took him, that's Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And that little sentence at the end there that, that, that slipped in by Luke, it's not a neutral comment. It's not just descriptive. Because you see, the, the Jews, they valued their history. They valued the, the Old Testament. They valued things that were tried and tested. But the Greeks did not. They just always assumed that new must always be better. They always went after the new thing. Maybe in a similar way that people might say to us today, oh, you know, we used to do Christianity. People used to believe that, but, but today we don't do that. It was a similar audience that Paul had. They scoffed at the idea of Christianity. Again, the, the start of verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Again, that, that word babbler, it was a word that was used basically to describe somebody who went to the marketplace. And the marketplace was a place where discussion happened in those days. So somebody went to the marketplace, they heard a little bit of this idea from over here and a little bit of that one from over there. And they put it together and they just kind of repeated it but they didn't actually have any knowledge underneath. It's a word that describes those who heard bits and pieces and then pretended to be intelligent. 
basically, when these people said this about Paul, they thought he was an idiot. People think that we've read something in the Bible and, and that we think we know everything, but that underneath, they, they think we're silly to believe it. And these people were skeptical to the gospel, even hostile. The rest of verse 18 says, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus. And do you notice that they didn't invite him to the Oropagus? They didn't say, would you fancy coming along and we will hear you on this? No, they took him. They brought him. This is actually more like a trial than anything else. They heard him preaching this stuff. It was new, but it was also offensive to them. So they said, here, you're going to come before us and you're going to explain yourself. They were hostile towards the gospel. Some translations say they took him to the Areopagus as if it was a place. And the NIV that we're reading this morning um, said they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus as if the Areopagus wasn't a place, but a group of people. Uh, we don't really know. It could be both, in fact, that they brought him to a particular group of people who met at this place. And sometimes the Areopagus is known as Mars Hill. Um, if you've heard about Paul preaching at Mars Hill, well, that, that's what we're reading this morning. So it was a society that was quite similar to our own, whether it's because they worshipped idols, whether it's because of the fact that they promoted tolerance but weren't actually so tolerant against Christianity, or whether it's that they lived for the here and now, whether it's they rejected eternal ideas, whether it's the fact that they always embraced what's new and what's current over all that old stuff that we used to believe, whether it's the fact that they scoffed that anybody could believe that, or whether it's simply that these people were lost and in need of a savior. As Paul entered Athens, he encountered people very similar to the people that we rub shoulders with in Belfast in 2022. So what we've done this morning so far is, is we've sort of recapped where we've been going with Paul. We followed him to Athens and we've seen that his audience in Athens have great similarities between them and our society. But what I want us to do with the rest of our time this morning is simply to ask the question, how did Paul reach these people? How did he go about reaching the very kind of people that we want to reach out to with the good news of Jesus today? And I think the first thing that we see is that he always began, he always started out in the synagogue. Now that might seem like a very strange place to start. You might think that Paul would immediately just want to kind of get out there and share the good news to, to people, religious and non-religious alike. But no, when Paul goes to speak to, to this Greek audience, he always went to a synagogue, if there was one in that town. Back at the start of chapter 17 in Thessalonica, that's what he does. Verse 2, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Then when he's chased away by night to Berea in verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. He does the same when he gets to Athens. We read that. And then when he goes on to Corinth in chapter 18, verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned, guess where? In the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then finally in chapter 19, when he finishes in Ephesus and spends his, his longer trip there. In verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. 
Paul starts his evangelism not actually out there in the public square, but in the synagogue with religious people, with people who he knows are going to be interested in what he has to talk about. He knows he can talk about the Old Testament law and the prophets and, and that the people will be interested. And from there, he can point them to Christ. And we know he does this. I mean, back in chapter 13, when Paul visited Antioch, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we're not going to look at it now, but if you read Acts 13, you'll see that he quotes the Old Testament five times when he says to the Jews and when he tries to persuade them about Jesus. He starts with people who are interested and are there to hear about the scriptures. I think that's why possibly Marty said last week, you know, never underestimate the power of an invitation, an invitation to church or to a men's or a women's event or, or to whatever it is. It's a good place to start for many people because if they've responded to an invitation to come to hear about Jesus, well then happy days. And that's where Paul starts. But I actually think there's an even deeper significance to this for us. And I say this not just because it's Paul's example, not just actually because it's the example of Jesus Christ who said that he came for the lost sheep of Israel first, who sent his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel first before he sent them out to all nations. But I also say it because I find it to be true in church. And the greater significance is this. We won't ever evangelize out there if we don't do it in here first. We won't evangelize out there if we don't do it here first. Here's what I mean. I don't just mean that people like me and Marty need to practice in here you know, before we get out there. There might be truth in that. But I think it's actually true for all of us. Because evangelizing people who are actually interested might just be the practice that you need for doing it out there. There might be a day when somebody comes into church and sits beside you and gets talking to you. And do you know what? They've come into church. It wouldn't be unusual for you to talk to them about Jesus. Maybe you're a leader in an organization where you have an opportunity to, to teach the Bible. And you know, that's, that's what's expected of you. That's what the person has come in expecting. So don't miss the chance. How can we do this though? How maybe if you're not a leader in an organization, how, how could you do that? Well, one thing you could do would be to ask Marty to, to rerun that last spiritual conversation workshop. You know, come in, hear about good ways to, to have those spiritual conversations and actually practice doing it with one another. Maybe for some of you, you might consider joining a discipleship group. What we do in those groups is, is we take a biblical truth and we, then we look at how it applies to our lives in all kinds of way, ways. We, we pray for one another, but we always have a little bit of our time dedicated to mission. And we think and we talk with one another and, and, and we encourage one another and, and we, we name people. We say, look, I, I'm working with, with this guy and I've had a conversation with him and I'd really like to speak to him more about Jesus. And we talk about that together and we pray for one another and we help one another. It begins here before it happens out there. Paul always started in the synagogue, but he never stayed in the synagogue. He never kept his message just to the synagogue. He always took it out to the masses. He always took it out to those who, in our terms, would never darken a church door who don't come to any of our organizations, who, who would never think about coming on a Sunday. Okay, he didn't get the chance to do that in Thessalonica or Berea because he was chased away. But in Athens, in chapter 17, verse 17, we read, 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And then when he goes on to to Corinth and and the Jews in the synagogue won't listen to him, what happens? Chapter 18, verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And it's from that house in Corinth that Paul essentially plants a church. He he shares the word of God. Ironically, the leader of the synagogue who, who, who chucked him out actually becomes a Christian in that house and his whole family believe and are baptized. In Ephesus, something similar happens in chapter 19, verse nine. But some of them, that's the Jews in the synagogue, became obstinate. They refused to believe. They publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. A marketplace, a house, a lecture hall. Yes, Paul begins with those who are interested, who are coming along to worship anyway, and that's great. But he knows he has to get the message out there to everyone. You know, sometimes I think um, Christians today, we, we just, we like to wring our hands. We like to say, isn't it awful that people don't come into church? People just aren't interested anymore. But I don't think that is good enough. I've even heard of the odd preacher who has said, you know what, it's, it's just my job to be here and to preach the gospel and, and it doesn't matter if I'm preaching to empty pews. I'm being faithful. You know, I, I'm doing my job. I'm preaching. But I don't think that's good enough. We have to take the message out. How do we do this? Well, Paul doesn't exactly reinvent the wheel here, actually. He just goes to a marketplace. He just goes into a house. He goes to a lecture hall. And I I realize that for us today, that might be a little bit removed. That might seem a little bit daunting to go up into a lecture hall. But it was an everyday occurrence then. It was just an everyday place. People came into lecture halls. They heard debates from different philosophers and they thought about them. It wasn't a big kind of scary thing for them. He just went to places where people were. It's not complicated. Are you a teacher this morning who gets to lead an RE lesson? Yes, I realize that there are limits to what you can say and sometimes you have to be careful. But what an opportunity to teach people about Jesus. Are you a neighbor to somebody who talks to people on their street about how things are going? Does your workplace have a a staff room where people talk about their problems? Paul just goes to everyday places. I know sometimes we can find it daunting and scary and, and sometimes it might be and sometimes the reaction mightn't be very good. But one thing it certainly isn't is rocket science. Paul just goes to where people are. So he begins in the synagogue, but he never stays in the synagogue. And the third thing then is that he knows his audience really well. We're told in verse 16 that while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And and those little words to see um, in the Greek are words which meant that he he really stopped and looked. He, He observed, he took it in. He had a good look around. In fact, he says later in verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. He looked really carefully at the culture around him. Now, there are some expressions of Christianity out there which advocate, you know, just 
you be holy and completely cut yourself off from the world around you. But I suspect that not many of us this morning are going to run off and become nuns or monks or something. And if you are thinking about it, please come and speak to me. But there may be times when we're tempted you know, to, to just stay out of things, to cut ourselves off. Now, I would hasten to add that, that Paul simply observes these things. He doesn't join in with them. He doesn't embrace what the Greeks are doing. And sometimes as Christians, we can fall into that trap too. You know, we think, well, we need to go along with our friends or our colleagues and what they're doing to kind of keep our foot in the door. You know, maybe if we do these things, we'll earn their respect. We'll stay in the friendship group and that'll help us maybe to get to talk to them about Jesus later. There are some things where that can be the case, but if we're having to compromise on our beliefs, if, if we're doing something that we wouldn't do if we thought Jesus was standing there watching us, then it was probably the time to say no. We want to know and understand the things that non-Christians do, what, what they get out of it, what they're after. I mean, they're people after all. It's not that hard for us to understand. But we want to know that so that we can show them a better way, not compromising what we believe. And so Paul, he, he really gets these people. He has observed their gods, he's observed their worship, and even actually as he speaks to them, to show that he, he knows what is relevant to them, he uses quotes from Greek philosophers. He says, you know, I, I see you have an altar to an unknown God. Well, well, let me tell you about the God you don't know. And in verse 28, he says, well, look, even your philosophers say there's a God in whom we live and move and have our being. That's from a philosopher called Epimenides. I've been trying to practice saying that. I don't know if I got it right, but it's from a Greek philosopher anyway. And he, and he says, look, even your poets have said, we are his offspring. That's from a man called Aratus. He uses things that they're familiar with. And interestingly, he doesn't quote the Bible. In speaking to the Jews in Antioch, he quoted it five times, but here he doesn't do it once. Now, having said that, he does give them both barrels. He does speak from the Bible, but he doesn't quote it directly. If you read what he says about the creation, about how we all ultimately come from one man, Adam, he talks about the purpose of mankind. God said to Adam to, to fill the earth and subdue it. Well, Paul says God made humanity so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And even though he starts by talking about this altar to an unknown God, he quickly says that their idol worship is completely wrong. God used to you know, look at that ignorance and, and leave it, but now he calls you to repent. Look with me again at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, there he's talking about creation, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So there it is, all this idol worship, it's nonsense because the Lord of all doesn't live in a temple. The way you try to bring sacrifices to keep these gods happy, it's nonsense because you can't serve God in that way. He doesn't need you to keep him happy. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. He challenges straight up this, this idea that, that we could make gods. He challenges their idolatry from the truth of Scripture. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. He set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul doesn't quote the Bible, but he does talk about the Bible. He does quote their philosophers to say, look, this isn't unreasonable. This isn't a fairy story. Even some of your philosophers have kind of worked it out. And he does reference their idols, but he's quick to show them from the scriptures that this is seriously misguided. He knows his audience. He's sensitive to what they know and what they don't know, but he speaks directly and biblically to him. And his message ends with a challenge to repent because of the coming judgment by Jesus at the resurrection. Back in the marketplace, the whole reason why he had got their attention because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Friends, I think we need to do the same. We need to speak into the lives of people around us, not necessarily browbeating them with the Bible, but not beating around the bush either. At the end of the day, we're called to share the truth, not to bow to the idols of tolerance or whatever, and to be afraid to speak the truth. Oh, you're someone who's really passionate about climate change. Oh yeah, I'm really passionate about that too. You know, as a Christian, you know, I believe God made this place and it was perfect and it was always meant to be better. But here's actually why it's dying. Here's a different type of pollution that God talks about in the Bible of sin. And here's why as God's people, we believe that we should look after the planet too. But let me tell you about how God's gonna fix all this. The real solution, a new earth, and here's what Jesus did to make it happen. You're somebody who lives for the moment. You're somebody who lives for pleasure. You mightn't use those words exactly. Well, let me tell you about the God who made you, who wants you to be happy, who wants you to have pleasure. But here's why you feel empty right now. Here's why the pleasure never lasts. And here's what God did to fix that and to give you joy forever. You know, it's not as hard as you think to have these kinds of conversations. It's not hard to get people to see that the world around them is broken. It's not difficult to see that people are searching for something to give them hope. They're beggars looking for bread, and we're beggars who find it. So Paul, he started in the synagogue, but he never stayed in the synagogue. He knew the culture around him, and finally, he was in it for the long haul. Paul gets different reactions everywhere he goes. You know, we, we've seen loads of that through these chapters in Acts. We read in verse 32, even here in Athens, that as soon as he mentions the resurrection and the judgment, some people sneered and mocked straight away. But others said they wanted to hear him again. And a man called Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and some others with them believed. When we share the gospel you know, there's, there's no point buttering this up. Some people will reject us straight up. That will happen. Some will believe, and that's amazing when that happens. In many cases, actually, all it does is it gets us another hearing. People don't make up their minds straight away. God starts to work in their hearts as we share the gospel, but they're not quite there yet. This isn't a short-term project. 
We need to be prepared when, when we share the gospel for those follow-up chats, for those questions, for those fresh opportunities to bring the gospel to bear for people. We shouldn't expect for things to happen just like that or for our church just to, to boom necessarily, although God can do wonderful things like that. Paul was driven out of some towns. We don't know how long he stayed in Athens exactly, but at least he had earned himself a second hearing with some from the Areopagus. When he went to Corinth and, and he left the synagogue and went to the house of Titius Justice, we're told that he stayed there for a year and a half in that house. And listen to this from chapter 19, verse 10. After he was turned away from the synagogue in Ephesus, he went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and here's what it says. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, the province of Asia isn't exactly what we think of as the continent of Asia today, but all in that province heard the word of the Lord because he was there for two years. You know, reading through Acts, I, I find it difficult. You know, they're all over the place and I can't follow it. I can't keep track. But actually, you can read it quite quickly, but it was quite a slow journey. They weren't short trips. When Paul went to a place, he was committed to it and in it for the long term. Sharing the good news of Jesus isn't something we do once, although even if we do it once, that's amazing. You know, we don't just hold one mission event or whatever. The whole community comes along and is saved and that's it. It's not as easy as that. It's a long-term project. So as much as anything else this morning, as I close, I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't give up. Even if you think you haven't done this very well, it doesn't matter. Don't give up. That family member you've been praying for, that person at work you've had conversations with, but you, know, you can't seem to get it to the next stage. The person you invited to church who didn't come. Don't give up. It's a long-term game. It begins in here. Paul began in the synagogue, but it can't end here because people out there need to hear the message. We need to know and understand where people are, but we're called to tell them the truth not to bow to the idol of tolerance, not to blindly accept the way they want to live their lives, however that is, without Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we go out and seek arguments. Our purpose in evangelism is to win souls, not arguments. Some people will just want to argue with us, but we don't get ourselves tangled up in that. We don't have all the easy answers for life in the here and now. We don't have to have all those answers because we want to point people to something eternal, something greater, something that will offer them eternal hope. It's a long-term game. We're just beggars telling other beggars where we find food. Some might turn their noses up at that food. Others might show interest, but, but hold back with reservations. But we keep offering the bread because it is the best news and the best food that we can give them. Jesus, the bread of life, who gives us eternal hope. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks again for the eternal hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that he has paved the way for us to know you. Thank you that we can live with that unshakable joy with him forever in your presence. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning that you would help each one of us in this task that you have given all your people 
to reach out to the world around us. Lord, help us in this place. Help us when we step out of this place. Help us to know the culture around us. But Lord, help us to live boldly and faithfully for you. Lord, in situations where we find it tough, we pray that you would be with us and we give you thanks for the promise in your word that we're not to worry what we have to say because it will be you speaking through us. And Lord, help us to trust in you as we share the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.